If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we will be reading from verses 1 to 8. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, and I see the veterans, uh, the usuals here. Y'all don't even do that. You'll just look at the screen, because you know it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, we'll be reading from the ESV, and may God bless the reading of his holy word. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Amen. The word of the Lord. The title of today's message is The Family of God. And I'm just going to give you the main idea, the take-home truth that I'd love for you to just, just chew on and, and uh, yeah, just think about. It's, this, it's simply this. Because we are a family born of God, we are a family that belongs to one another. That's all it is. Because the church is a family born of God, we must be a family that belongs to one another. Now, growing up, I always attended church with, with my family. It was my mom and my dad and my younger brother. And by God's grace, we were able to be at one church for most of our lives, most of our lives. Now, if you've experienced this, your experience of belonging to a church family can become very tribal and not necessarily biblical. In our members class last week, we were asking, how long have you been coming to All Nations or ANC? Some of the guys said, 17 years. This church is only 21 years old, right? Uh, some people are like, 13 years, They're like 15 years. I was like, oh my gosh. But that was very similar to my experience growing up at my home church in Atlanta. When you do this, church becomes about your family doing life together with a core group of other families for years and even decades. I remember growing up with the same set of friends all the way from elementary to junior high and high school. We would attend Korean school together. That's, that's called hangarakyo, and I, like, I hated it. We would try to ditch, but we would all do that like, together. We would play sports after church. We would bring our Game Boys. We would, we would always be hanging out and, and causing mischief all throughout church. We acted like church was like our playground and our property. Right? We attended retreats together. We went on mission trips together. We became a very tight-knit group of friends, and we did this for years and years and years. See, we considered each other church family because we spent so much time together. We had so many common experiences, common joys and passions. And every time a new kid came into our church, we viewed them as outsiders. They had to earn their way into our fellowship, earn their way into our brotherhood. They had to prove themselves worthy of our acceptance. So the talented musicians, they would be recruited as new additions to the praise teams. The good athletes, they became top free agents when we were playing basketball and football, and they could acquire acceptance 
the cool kids, and especially the good-looking ones, they would get invitations to go watch movies with us on Saturday night or go grab lunch with us after church. Does this sound familiar to you? And our common kind of tribal experience of what it means to be hashtag ANC family or a church community together. But church, I want to say that those are the marks of a cultural church. Those are the marks of a tribal church and not a biblical family of God. The true church is not marked by simply shared culture or social acceptance. The true church is a family born of God. Okay? The true church is a family born of God. And that is our first point today. What does it mean to be a family born of God? Brothers and sisters, do you recall how the Lord's Prayer begins. We can at least get this far in the Lord's Prayer, right? It all starts with our Father, right? Our Father. And that is a great reminder to all of us. Every family member has the same Father. And our Father is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's why together, as the sons and daughters of God, together as Christians, we pray, our Father who art in heaven. And not only does every family member have and share the same Father, every family member comes into the church the same way. We are all kind of going through this rite of passage, this initiation experience together it's all the same remember my youth group experience the musicians they could get in the athletes they could get in the good-looking cool kids they could get in all different paths to social acceptance but in the church we all take the same journey the same path to joining this family and it's not by culture or ethnicity or giftedness it's through the supernatural rebirth that comes from the gospel in John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, this is what the apostle writes. But to all who did receive him, and that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Church, this is an important text for us as we think about what it means to be the family of God. We are a people not born of, of blood, not born of the will of man, but we are a people born of God. And this means that every person who has received Christ, every person who has entrusted their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are your brother. They are your sister, not just the people you've grown up with not just the people you are close to or enjoy community with, but every person who believes that Jesus is Lord and Savior is your brother or sister. They are your family. It sounds simple, but it, it requires a radical reorientation of how we view family, of how we view our identity. You see, most people, we don't understand this. Okay? We nod to it, we kind of like assent to it intellectually, but we don't live this out. We don't really believe this in our hearts. Sure, we can call each other church family, right? We'll say, yeah, yeah, we're a family of God. But in your minds, in your heart, your real family, that's your blood family, right? Your real, fam your real family is your spouse, your real family are your children, your siblings, your parents. This is just your kind of quote-unquote church family and your secondary spiritual family. Isn't that true of most of us? Right? That's, that's my honest sentiment as well. Right? 
But you know what Jesus does? He flips it. He reorients this. He says, in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, everything is different. In Mark 3, while Jesus was ministering to the crowds, his mother and brothers, they came to see him. They came looking for him. And so naturally, all the people on the outside, they, they're you know, like, pass the message to Jesus. Jesus, your mom is looking for you. Jesus, your brothers are looking for you. And Jesus sees this, not to deny his parents, right? Not to deny his mother, but he sees this as a teaching moment. And he answered them in Mark 3, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother, here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see that? In that moment, Jesus is saying, the family of God is deeper, more profound, more meaningful than our fleshly, earthly families. And he's not just saying that about you and your own family. He said that about his own family. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's those who do the will of God, right? That is their, that is Jesus's primary family. As much as he loved Mary, his mother, as much as he honored Mary as his mother, he knew that there was a greater family, an eternal, a kingdom family that he had, he had come to, 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 to purchase and to redeem. And that was the spiritual family of God, people who were born of God, whose lives were oriented around doing the will of God. Church, do you believe this? Jesus modeled this for us. The tragedy is that we don't believe that. We don't follow him into this kind of spiritual family. And then we ask, why isn't the church more like a family? Why aren't we a deeper community? Why don't we sacrifice more for one another? It's because we view each other as secondary. We don't follow the pattern of Jesus and his spiritual family having primacy in our lives. Church, take a moment, look around. You don't have to greet each other, just look around, look for a stranger, someone whose name you do not know, someone you've never had a conversation with and you probably won't talk to today. Just like match eyes with them and throw them like an awkward forced smile. <laughs> there are plenty of strangers. There isn't a person here that knows every single name. I, I'm the lead pastor and I can't even do that, right? There isn't a person here who can name everyone's child. We are sitting in the, in the midst of strangers, right? Some friends, many strangers, right? But you know what God is telling us today? Even though you don't feel close to them, even though you haven't experienced personal, relational intimacy with them, they're more than strangers. They're more than just common church goers. God is telling us if that person sitting next to you, if the person sitting across the room for, from you, if they have received Christ, then we must receive them. If they have acknowledged God as their father, then we must acknowledge them as our brother and our sister, as our father and as our mother. That is what God is calling us towards. Do you believe this? Even better, are you willing to try to live in that reality? Are you willing to try to view each other, not as strangers, 
but as brothers and sisters in the family of God. You see, we associate family with intimacy and familiarity, okay? So the closer you are to somebody, the more you're willing to say, oh, you're my brother. Oh, you're my sister, right? There's that phrase, you're like, you're like my brother from another mother. You will only say that to somebody if you have relational, personal intimacy. But the Bible tells us that though family produces intimacy, it's based on paternity, okay? Your family, your spiritual family is not based on your relational closeness. It's based on paternity. Who is our father? And if we share the same father, our father who art in heaven, then we, we need to get it right. Then we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Church, that's what we are. That's what we're trying to live into. That's what we're trying to experience here at All Nations to be a family born not of the will of man, not of the work of the flesh, but to be born of God. Now, if this is true, what does life in God's family look like? And this is where our passage in 1 Timothy comes in. And Paul is teaching us what life in the family of God looks like. And the first thing that we see in the church is that it is a family of all generations, right? A family of all generations. Let's dive into our passage again, verses one to two. Paul writes, do not rebuke an older man. All the old guys are like, yes, all right? Don't, don't rebuke me. Don't say nothing to me. Uh, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Here we see a picture of the church not consisting of just one gender or one generation, but having a healthy expression of diversity. There are both men and women of varying generations in the body of Christ. But it's not about treating everyone the same, okay? It's not. It's not about treating everyone exactly the same. Rather, rather, in the family of God, though there is equality, there is also propriety, okay? There are appropriate ways we are to treat older men, older women, younger men, younger women. The Bible advocates propriety in the household of God, right? One pastor writes that in an orderly family, each person is treated with respect according to his or her age and gender. So Paul begins with instructions to treat older men in the church with respect as fathers. He says not to rebuke them harshly, but to encourage them. Paul knows that young Timothy as a pastor, we'll need to correct the men in the church, okay? So Paul isn't saying, let the old guys do whatever they want and never say no to them. No, right? He's giving him wisdom and exhortations and the tools to be able to do this well. We all know that the church in Ephesus that Timothy is ministering to, it's a divided church. The leadership has failed the church, and these are the older men in ministry as elders and deacons and pastors who have failed. There is heresy, there is division, and Timothy, as a young pastor, has been called to go and to shepherd them, right? To help heal the church, to help unite the church. But he's saying, don't give the older guys a tongue lashing. Don't rebuke them in harshness, right? You need to do that with gentleness and with wisdom. You need to, right? You need to speak to them and correct them from the perspective of family, as a young man would his father, right? Not as an adversary. You see, church, in the fifth commandment, 
God has called us to honor our fathers and mothers. And if we are a family of God, then the implication extends beyond our immediate families, our immediate birth, like blood fathers and mothers. God is calling us to honor the older men and women in the church as spiritual fathers and mothers. And so the implications of the fifth commandments are, is, commandment is extending. Next, we see that younger women, they should be treated as brothers. Just as Timothy must not let others look down on him because he is young, he must not look down on younger men either. Just as younger men are called to elevate older men with honor, the older men are called to elevate younger men as their brothers in the fraternity of faith. Okay, It's very, very important. Right? Very, very important. This is so important for our context today. In our culture, it's natural to honor the elders, right? If you, if you go down and uh, to the main campus down there, you'll see a bunch of uh, older gentlemen wearing suits. And your natural thing, you don't even know why. Be... <laughs> <laughs> it's just instinctual, right? You just start bowing, the eyes go down. Right? It's very natural in our context and in our culture to feel like, okay, we need to honor you know, older men, right? It's easy to operate out of our own bias, though thinking that younger generations aren't as mature, right? It's easy to look down on the younger guys. It's, you know what? When I was your age, we were so much more disciplined. When we were in your generation, right? We were so much more committed to God and sacrificial and holy and devoted. And you guys are just slackers, right? You guys are in, entitled. You are lazy. You are, you are naive, right? And as long as older generations continue to look down on younger generations, especially older men down on younger men, this will only create greater division, right? Greater separation and biases in the church. And so in the family of God, younger men are called to honor older men, but older men are called to elevate younger men, not talk down to them, not treat them as sons, but to treat them as brothers, to invite them into the fraternity of faith. Older brothers, I want to tell you that there are few things more powerful right, that you can offer a younger man in the church than your friendship, your brotherhood, your encouragement. Right? It means so much to our younger brothers to be accepted by you, to possibly be mentored by you, to be affirmed by you, to be coached by you. That's what they say millennials want. Okay? Millennials want coaching. They love mentoring. And older brothers, if you are willing to do that, we will be living in the joy and power of what it means to be a family of God. I really want to encourage you guys to consider that. After addressing the older and younger men, Paul addresses how we should treat the older and younger women in the church. And first he says, older women should be treated as mothers. There's an old saying, if you want to see how a man will treat his future wife, watch how he treats his mother. Right? Wives, is that, is that kind of true? Right. Uh, that kind of scares me because I grew up being really rude to my, my mother. And so uh, hopefully I, I like try to keep that beast away from, from my marriage. But that's a common phrase. If you want to see how a man's going to treat his future wife, watch how he treats his mother. Church, how do you see the older women right, in our congregation, in our fellowship? God's word is calling us to treat them like mothers. Mothers should be loved. Mothers should be honored. They should be respected to and listened to, especially when their counsel is godly and biblical. 
Paul himself had a spiritual mother in the church. In Romans 16, chapter 13, when he's finishing the letter and he's giving all of his greetings, he greets a man named Rufus, right? He greets Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Paul experienced the joy and the power of having spiritual mothers to pray for him, to care for him, to minister to him. And that was so, so precious for him as a man serving in the church. Finally, regarding the younger women in the church, Paul writes that they should be treated as sisters in all purity. Other translations read in in utmost purity. In utmost purity. I was in college when I was deeply first convicted by this verse. As a young single man, I, like many other men, did not regard young women as sisters in purity. That just wasn't my mode of operation. When I was at USC as a freshman and I'm meeting girls for the very first time, I wasn't thinking sister in purity. Do you know what I was thinking? Right? Right? Date killer Mary, right? (laughs) Or like there's there's that game that we play. We're like, like, what kind of, where, where do you fit in my grid? right? Are you somebody, somebody that I would potentially like to date? Are you somebody that I would potentially like to pursue? Or are you like friend zone, right? Friend zone. Or am I, are you just, I don't even need to talk to you. That was my fleshly, worldly, selfish framework. And so many men treat women in that same way. Single guys, when you meet new girls, you're always thinking potential or no potential, right? That, 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 it's so selfish. And yet that was what I was going through, right? At USC, in our campus fellowships, and at church, meeting so many girls, and it was all through that selfish, lustful, worldly grid. And then Paul writes, treat young women as sisters with utmost purity. Brothers, how are you doing in that? Do you see the young women in our church as objects you can lust after, fantasize about? Or do you see them as sisters? And are you zealous for their purity? Will you guard and protect their purity? That really convicted me. I hope it's something that you would pray over and consider. And that's not just for our young guys. It's for our married men as well. Married men as well, to see them as sisters and guard their purity. So that's, that's life. That's, that's the first kind of uh, picture that, that Paul paints for us, that the church is a family of God of all generations, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. The second thing that, that Paul tells us is that the church is a family marked by justice. Our passage closes with detailed instructions on how to minister to widows in the church. It's notable that Paul covers the other men and women in the church so quickly, like two verses They're all like the four basic groups. But he spends so much time talking about the widows in the church. Why? The reason for this is because because God cares deeply for widows. In the Old Testament, God is described as the protector of widows. God promises to execute justice for the fatherless and for the widow. Why? Because injustice is happening so much against widows in their faith community. 
God cares deeply for the most vulnerable and marginalized members of the church. And in the first century, widows were those people, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable. They were often in danger physically. They were in danger financially because they didn't have the same kind of economic means that men had back then. They were also isolated relationally. In fact, it was because of the unfair treatment of widows in the early church, in the book of Acts, that the first deacons were called. In Acts chapter 6, the church was showing partiality to the Jewish widows over the Greek Hellenist, uh, Hellenist uh, widows. Right? There was a division there. There was injustice. And so deacons were called right, to serve fairly, equitably right, towards all of the widows. God is a God of justice, and he wants to ensure that his justice is reflected in the church. Phil Riken had a great quote on this saying, God knows that as long as his weakest children are protected, his whole family will be safe. All right. Parents, if you have multiple children, all right, who has your heart? Is it the strong one or is it the weak one? Who do you worry more about? Who are you more, I mean, you love them equally, but who are you more concerned over? It's not the strong one, it's the weak one. The weak one has your heart, doesn't he? Doesn't she, right? The same is with God. God knows that the widows are the most vulnerable in the church. And so the widows have his heart and he cares for them. And he knows that as long as his weakest children are protected, the whole family is safe. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 to 8. I'm just going to read this one more time. With, with that in mind, with God's heart in mind, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. And when he's talking about honoring the widows, he's specifically saying care for them, provide for them, protect them, not just like, Clapping. He's saying, like, offer tangible support. That's what it means to honor them. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I don't have too much time to unpack all the details, but I just want to share a couple brief observations on the biblical care of widows. First, we see that not all widows should receive care and support from the church. Okay, not all widows, right? If a widow has a family to support her, she should return to her family, whether it be her parents, whether it be her children, whether it be her grandchildren, if she has family, right? And even if that takes reconciliation, they are called to reconcile with their family, to go back to their family and receive that kind of support. Right? And we are called to do that. Fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. Right? Part of that honoring is to care and to provide and to protect them and to support them. Right? And so first, if a widow has that, uh, they don't need the, the support from the church. Right? Um, but if she is truly all alone, then the church should support, should support her. If she is destitute, right, then the church needs to step in and offer 
care, protection, provision. The second criteria is this, faithfulness. Widows worthy of honor, widows deserving of support are those who have set their hope on God and continue in prayers night and day. Though she might feel alone in this world, the true widow that Paul is talking about knows that God is with her and her strength and her portion comes from the hand of the Lord. Now, I want to share a a modern application that Kent Hughes, another pastor, wrote. and, And I thought that this was so profound. He said this. It's going to go up on the screen. Today, I believe the application of this passage should be wider because modern American culture has produced a category of women virtually unknown in the first century, Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouses and left without family support. Godly single mothers are a new class of widow. And those without family and resources are the church's sacred responsibility. Those believers who are involved in fleshing out our obligation are doing the work of God, true religion. And to that, I want to say amen. We need to broaden our understanding of what it means to be in isolation and in destitution and in need. So it's not, just, it's not just widows, but it truly is the, the single mother who has been abandoned, abandoned by her husband, the children who have been abandoned by their father. I was reminded at a conference this week that the church is, is not about just getting people on the outside into the church, okay? That's, that's, that's important. We are called to evangelize. We are called to reach out. We are called to engage and be missional. But I was reminded this week that we are also called to take care of the flock, to love one another, to protect one another, to shepherd the family of God that, that God has given us. And, 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 and we're far from being there, right? We are not the finished product. But, but when I read passages like this, my heart, my, my heart wells up and, and I get to see a greater vision. I hope and I pray that one day, all nations, that we would be a church that can tangibly, right, meaningfully care for widows, care for single mothers, to provide more than just sentiments and the, oh, we'll be praying for you. Oh, you can do it. Type of platitudes that we hear too often in the Christian church. I want us to be a church that actually can administer the mercy of Christ, that we can be a church that actually reflects the justice of God and the heart of God for the weakest, the most marginalized and vulnerable people in our community. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to become all nations? That's on my heart, right? And by God's grace, I want us to be there. I want us to get there. I just want to share a final Bible passage that comes from the Gospel of John. And this is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And these are some of his final words. And we're often familiar. When we think of Jesus' final words on the cross, we think like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So epic, right? Or we think of like, it is finished. It is finished. And that's, that's epic too. Or, or Jesus looking to that thief on the cross and says, today you will be with me in paradise. These are one of Je- this is one of Jesus' sayings that is so often forgotten. As he's hanging on the cross, breathing his last breaths, Jesus sees 
John, the beloved disciple. And he sees his mother, his own mother who was a widow, right? And this is what he says. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Church, this is the family of God. The apostle John caught it. He understood that that it's more than a metaphor. It's more than just a story. It's more than just, just an idea. That to be the family of God, that has to be a reality. So John took Jesus' mother in as his own mother. And he loved her. And he honored her. And he provided for her because Jesus on the earth wasn't going to do that anymore. That's the family of God. Would you consider what that might look like if you and I, if we stepped into that kind of family? if we loved one another with that kind of devotion, if we sacrificed for one another right, with that kind of faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for the work, for the message, for the life of Jesus Christ, because it is through you, Lord Jesus, that we can be reborn into your great family. It is through the work of the gospel that we can become adopted sons and daughters of the most high God. And so Lord, we thank you for this identity. But Lord, we also pray that you'd have mercy upon us for not living out all of the implications of what it means to be your sons and daughters. Forgive us for only enjoying that vertical reality enjoying you as our father. Forgive us for neglecting one another as our brothers, our sisters, our mothers and fathers. Lord, would you teach us and lead us? Would you show us more of what it means to be a family of God? Would would our church be a church where older men and women are honored and loved? Where younger men are affirmed and lifted up where where younger women are, are treated as sisters in all purity. Help us to be a church that loves justice, not just the sound of the word and not just the, the idea, but loves justice in, in life, in reality, fleshed out, a justice that is tangible, a justice that offers true and real benefits to our lives. God, we are desperate and dying to see that in the church and in the world. Would you establish your justice in this community and in this family? Help us to love the least of these. Help us to love one another. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.